Ah, good evening, culture fans. My God, what a fantastic world it is. Look at all those things out there moving, shifting in the darkness. Yes. <laughs> in the cabin. Not a soul would dare to sleep. It was midnight on the waters. And a storm was on the deep. Yes, tis a fearful thing in winter to be shattered in the blast and to hear the rattling trumpet thunder. Cut away the mast! So we shuddered there in silence for the stoutest held his breath while the hungry sea was roaring and the breakers talked of death. And thus we sat in darkness, each one busy in his prayers. We are lost, the captain shouted as he staggered down the stairs. But his little daughter whispered as she took his icy hand, Isn't God upon the ocean just the same as on the land? And then we kissed the little maiden, and we spoke in better cheer, and we anchored safe in harbor when the morn was shining clear. Hold it there. Thank you. Thank you. That's enough. Hold it. Cut it. Thank you, dear. That's very nice. Thank you, John. I just thought a little culture here. Uh, you know, speaking of culture, I'll tell you. I got a, the reason this all came up. I got a letter the other day from somebody who said, uh, Shepard, I read your stuff in, in uh, Playboy and I read your novels and stuff, and how come you never write any poetry? That's a good question. And, uh, and, uh, and I think a question that should be answered and deserves to be answered by God, because poetry is part of the Western world's heritage of culture, correct? A man of good taste must understand, know, feel, and appreciate poetry. If he's going to be part of the general culture wave of Western world going all the way back through Shakespeare beyond to Beowulf himself. Well, I think one of the reasons almost all of us secretly, uh, not, I shouldn't say almost all of us, large numbers of us, dislike poetry is because of the poetry we get in school. And, uh, you know, that since this is culture night, I'm going to have to admit to you that I have a genuine antipathy. Now, I, if once I start to read poetry, I like it. But it's like going to the dentist. Once I get in the chair, I give myself up and I say, okay, there's nothing to do about it. You do what you want, you know. And uh, it's, a, it's, you know, poetry can be destroyed by the, by the least... Uh, Subtle of means. For example, you know, speaking of poetry, the other day I'm, I'm sitting in this elegant French restaurant down in the village. Now, it was very romantic. And, uh, you know, they had everything in it. They, they, uh, they were the mussels in, uh, in garlic sauce, and the elegant French wine, the candlelight, and the whole bit. And, um, you know, everything was kind of, kind of soft and hazy and romantic and 
and three or four glasses of this French wine. In fact, it was Medoc, in case you're interested, Jerry. You're a wine type. You know the type of wine I was drinking then, right? So uh, it's it's a kind of right, you know, and I, I, uh, I had uh, a little uh, French pâté enjoying the evening. And uh, after the meal, which was very, very poetic, the... Uh, the demitasse was served. There's a call immediately for... Somebody called for Café au lait. And uh, that is the girl called for Café au lait. And I called for... I called for espresso. At which point the waitress, who was an elegant French waitress, uh, came in and, and gave us our Café au lait and our demitasse. And we're sitting there enjoying it. And uh, the girl I was with says, uh, May I have some sugar with my... Café au lait. And so I said, uh, uh, please, uh, Miss uh, Sucre, Sucre, s'il vous plaît. And uh, she says, ah, mais oui. And she rushes out to get the sugar, right? And she brings the sugar in and puts it down in front of me. Now, here we are in this elegant French restaurant. What do you expect? You know, you expect, perhaps you expect little tiny petite cubes, wouldn't you? Maybe, perhaps, uh, elegantly served with little silver tongs. What do we get? We get a bunch of these little envelopes. You know, there's nothing nothing that kills the romance of a moment than to have sugar served in envelopes that have uh, uh, various ads all over them. And uh, this particular ad really killed the whole idea of poetry. Here we had this great moment going, and and the girl takes this little envelope of sugar out, and on the on outside it says, Tommy Bartlett's Wild Animal Circus, in red, white, and blue letters. Tommy Bartlett's... Wild Animal Circus, the Dells, Wisconsin. Now, how in the hell they got sugar that advertised Tommy Bartlett's Wild Animal Circus in the Dells, Wisconsin? I have no idea. And I will award a brass figgy with bronze oak leaf palm to any of you out there who can tell me who Tommy Bartlett is. You, you think you're a trivia fan? Did you ever hear the name Tommy Bartlett? Oh, yes, you did. Did. You know, it's funny how people don't really, they're, they're not really interested in true trivia. True trivia is genuinely trivial. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's face it, uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart is not trivial. People always think of Humphrey Bogart. What picture did Humphrey Bogart play in 1937? This is not trivial. It was probably a $7 million production. True trivia is that which is almost immediately forgotten, in spite of the fact it was immensely popular. That's trivia, friend. Very few people remember Marv Throneberry, in spite of the fact that Marv Throneberry was immensely popular at one point in time. Where is Marv Throneberry today when we don't need him? Uh, this has been asked many, many times. Nobody knows. Uh, where are the Rod Keneals of yesteryear? But the fact is, Tommy Bartlett was the, one of the big names. He disappeared instantly. And now he has a wild animal circus in the Dells, Wisconsin. And here, in, in the middle of all this, we're having this romantic moment. This girl takes this thing, see? Here, I, here I'm about to move in for the kill. She takes the envelope and says, Say, uh, who is this Tommy Bartlett? Forget it. It's all over. Spent the next 20 minutes arguing about it. wild animal circuses, Tommy Bartlett, and the Dells of Wisconsin. Now, who was Tommy Bartlett? I'm not going to tell you. 
The hell with you. If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. I, if your knowledge of American pop trivia culture is that low, don't come to me for instruction. I mean, this is beyond the scope of your knowledge, friend. You should be down there listening to Cousin Fignuk or whatever the hell he is down there playing that pimple music. Get down there. That's where you belong. But uh, <laughs> I'm serious. That's probably where you are anyway. <laughs> but uh, this, uh, this, uh, you know, here it is. Now, if you think that I'm inventing this, and it's, it's just only because Shepard has this vast memory of bad stuff, here it was in a village French cafe. I did not invent the news. There it is. Who was Tommy Bartlett? He was also popular at the same time that a guy made his great fame running around wearing ladies' hats and giving out orchids to elderly ladies. Who was that? Don't know who he is either, huh? Okay. Well, that's good enough. I'm beginning to believe that there are just a few people out of every given 100,000 in population who actually see the world they live in. All the rest get it through W-I-N-S, you know, <laughs> which is which is filtered through a glass darkly, friends. And, uh, and uh, it's, a, you know, it's a kind of a sad uh, thing to see this. It's true. Uh, uh, Tommy Bartlett's Wild Animal Circus in the Dells, Wisconsin. I got to get that. I can pull out other ones like this. That you undoubtedly at one time were heavily, heavily, very heavily, heavily influenced. By, and you don't even know that you were. You don't remember it. All right, I'll ask you another one. Who is the poet, speaking of poetry, there was a poet that was in every newspaper, like uh, he was published in newspapers all the time. Every day there would be a poem by this guy in the newspaper. I don't know what paper carried him in New York, but about three of them did. But just recently, too. And he was the most published poet in the history of poetry. Because not many guys get syndicated as a poet in 795 newspapers, including 422 overseas editions. That's a lot of... <laughs> five days a week, he writes a poem. Who was that? Okay. See? There you go. Well, your knowledge of culture is very limited. Now, I'm, I'm asking you about the... About, uh, you know, uh, the, your own field, poetry, right? You claim that you're a culture hound? Okay. So uh, I, I, I just say that I, I'm, I, I think that many of us, from the time we were little kids, you know, were turned off of stuff that we should be turned on to. Like, uh, like I have tried repeatedly, repeatedly, I have attempted to enjoy Shakespeare. Now, I'm going to be honest with you that I have, I've even played in it. You might may be surprised to hear that, but I have. Yes, I have. In fact, uh, at one point, I was trained as a classical actor, and I and I uh, did many pieces of of uh, classical poetry and and uh, drama on stage with audiences. And you know, I know I know many a uh, many a Shakespearean actor who secretly does not enjoy Shakespeare. He enjoys acting. That's not the same <laughs> as enjoying Shakespeare. Now, I, I say it goes back to traumatic experiences that we had in school. One of the most traumatic experiences I ever had in school was the time we had this teacher named, named Miss E. McCullough. No better among the more erudite students is Elephant McCullough. Uh, for obvious reasons, if you knew Miss McCullough, she had everything but a trunk. And, uh, you know, she, in fact, there was a vestigial trunk there. And, and uh, 
and E. McCullough had a real thing on Shakespeare. Now, this was in my second year in high school. You know, when you start really, you're a sophomore. And this was a terrible moment. She, you know, up to this point, any time we had English, you know, we're always reading, uh, always reading Lady of the Lake. Uh, I can remember endless <laughs> English class reading Lady of the Lake, which, by the way, I think has turned the entire five generations off of reading. And no wonder the comic book is the chief source of uh, literature now for the average slob. Uh, once you have met Lady of the Lake, you just don't go back for seconds. Uh, once you spend your time grazing uh, in uh, Silas Marner, you just don't go back for another helping. It's just the way it is. So uh, Miss E. McCullough turned us off to Shakespeare in one swell foot, one, uh, one, one cut of the sword. We were, this is like the second day uh, in Miss McCullough's class. And, first day she, and she had one of these, uh, she had one of these voices, you know, there's certain kind of women who talk like this, you know. And, uh, yes, you know, uh, you're all going to enjoy this class. And all you have to do is just uh, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Oh, my God, I just get sick thinking of E. McCullough. Uh, I can remember her say, you know, she was one of these very loud, would have made a wonderful, wonderful second. She could have sat right next to Bella. Uh, you know, uh, she, she would have made a terrific trilogy, Bella, Gloria, uh, and, and Elephant McCullough, because she had the kind of trumpet-like voice that is always associated with being a forceful lady. Uh, and she was a trumpet. She, she would say, oh, of course, my God, uh, Mrs. W.O.R., New York, an RKO General Station, uh, naturally. Uh, this is uh, she had that, 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 that kind of hoarse voice, and she had the kind of voice that you know she has studied uh, vocal uh, techniques and diction uh, at uh, Bryn Mawr. And she loved to swing her bottom jaw. I told you, I think it's time now for a little commercial, please. They say there's a time in life for everything. For Dubonnet, the time is before. Before, that's the time to think about some Dubonnet to drink. Before's the proper time of day to have yourself a Dubonnet. Before, yeah, before. It's the time before for Dubonnet. Some wines are made to go with lunch or dinner, some after. But Dubonnet tastes different because it's made to go before. Before the steak, before whatever you've got cooking. Just pour it over the rocks. Add a twist. Soda, if you like. That's Dubonnet before. Made to make what comes after that much better. Before, yeah, before. The time before for Dubonnet. Dubonnet Company, New York, New York. Ah, très élégant, uh, Dubonnet. Uh, très élégant, apéritif. And if uh, you uh, wish to have something after your aperitif, we would like to suggest a uh, fine bottle of red Beaujolais. You will truly be living in the French style. I can just see your elegant patio in Queens. You are enjoying the Beaujolais after the Dubonnet. And five minutes later, you would not care whether the air conditioning is on or not. <laughs> Alexis Lachine Beaujolais tastes fresh, light, and fruity. And Beaujolais is the most popular French wine in America. And while other wines have increased their prices, Alexis Lachine is still at the same low price. Alexis Lachine Beaujolais is the perfect summer drink to enjoy life in the French style, old Francais. Enjoy Beaujolais 
Imported by Boss Sherrington Vietnamese. Remember, there's a name, Alexis Lachine, Trey Legant. Alexis Yeah, I'll tell you, that's real good wine. That's drinking wine. Hey, you know, speaking of things that turns you off, I mean, if you think that uh, Lady of the Lake did it, I would like to submit to you that one that even topped that was Ivanhoe. Uh, <laughs> there was always somebody named Sir Mordred. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I must tell you a little more about Shakespeare because it was a real fantastic dramatic moment, Miss E. McCullough said, uh, boys and girls, uh, if I have done nothing else as a teacher, I, I uh, would like to pride myself on saying that I have brought the enjoyment, the deep enjoyment of the bard to thousands of children. Uh, incidentally, that, that, that type of lady, may I tell you this, Steve, is found... A great deal of those ladies are found on PBS, uh, public broadcasting. There, uh, I, there's nothing more, uh, let's say, uh, educational. If you really want to, uh, to, to, to understand what kids don't like and do like, is to watch an educational-type show that's run by a hearty lady surrounded by children. Like the other day, by inadvertently, in between acts, Jerry, of uh, your favorite show, the Watergate hearings, one of these ladies suddenly appeared. They said, we will now rejoin the show in progress. And here's a lady with her hand-woven Mexican uh, tweed skirt. You know, you can just see she makes her jewelry out of uh, hand-baked ceramics and that stuff. And she's talking like this. She says, boys and girls, now... All of you really love to watch an artist at work, don't you, boys and girls? And these two little kids, you know, looking at her. Now, boys and girls, we're going to paint, and we're going to watch an artist paint. Isn't that right, boys and girls? Don't we all enjoy watching an artist paint, boys and girls? And now, boys and girls, before we do that, I'd like to sing a little song for you that we learned back in the days when I was a little girl, and we learned these songs at my mother's knee, Songs of Wales. Oh, I was sitting by the seashore. And the kids are looking. You can just see this, the, the look of, of, of cream of wheat boredom. The kind of boredom that makes you itch to watch it. And, and these, two little, these two little victims are standing next to her throughout the entire show. They don't say anything except uh, once in a while. And she would, then at the end of the show, this, this hearty lady says, And now, boys and girls, haven't we had a good time today here at Hodgepodge Lodge? At which point one of the kids goes, And boys and girls, tomorrow we're going to learn how to weave Mexican baskets. Isn't that going to be exciting, boys and girls? Yes, tomorrow we're going to have a Mexican basket weaver. And for all of you boys and girls, goodbye, Z boys and girls out there in television land until tomorrow when we see you at Hodgepodge Lodge. Goodbye, boys and girls. Goodbye. God deliver us from hearty ladies who weave their own skirts. Bring it up. Oh, yeah. I used to love... The way the world turned. 
helicopter. Baba boo, baba boo, 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 boo. And the birds flew overhead. And the clouds went drifting by. Baba boo, baba boo, 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 boo. And the water danced and sparkled under that great big old shining sun. But then I ran into official culture. And I began to do something to my deep, deep, deep soul. And I discovered there are things one does just because one does them things. Because them things is the right things to do. Yeah. I used to love to hear them horns, them jazz horns blowing in the quiet twilight. Blowing the blues. Singing the songs. Talking about the way life really is. Used to dig it. Sit there with my foot moving up and down. The sound of the horns blowing through my soul. Yeah. Little did I know that I was listening to the basic primitive American culture. Second semester. Three credit hours. With a deep rock reference given the lectures. Until I discovered that I was in culture, that I began to lose interest. Come on, hear that thing, man. Blow it. I say, blow it. and sneering but um you know I, and i i <laughs> and i don't blame you man I, I just uh i just think though that sometimes we are turned off things by the way we're introduced to them and i just wonder uh where the answer lies i'm very serious about that i i uh i uh i think that uh I remember the day that, that, that this teacher e mccullough and you went to, you went to some shakespeare last night didn't you jerry 
And it's great. Uh, under certain circumstances with the sky and the clouds and all that stuff, you know. I think that's, uh, you know, you go up to Stratford maybe, and it's just it's a very pleasant afternoon. But uh, there's another side to it. And that's uh, that's the side to it when, when you get the Blue Book exam. And uh, I, I remember the, that, that terrible moment when Miss E. McCullough says, Boys and girls, Shakespeare is to enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Remember, he was an Englishman writing about his time, boys and girls. And, of course, since his time was uh, the time of the poet, the man looking at his world, his world, uh, I'm sure that all of you will realize the importance and the basic relevance to our daily lives. Well, I'm not sure that King Lear has much relevance to the daily life of a kid going to the Warren G. Harding school. Uh, but she was very sure of it. <laughs> Could very well have something to do with her life, too. Maybe incipient madness, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, the, the, the moment when she said, and boys and girls, the best way for us to enjoy, enjoy, enjoy Shakespeare is to actually perform him. After all, you know, boys and girls, he's a playwright. Uh, his, uh, his magical words are to be heard. Uh, they're not to be read uh, in a quiet room. Uh, they are to be heard, played by living players. And so I would like all of you, uh, each one of you, to select a scene that you would like to do uh, for the class, and we will have our scenes beginning next Monday. And it's going to be fun, fun, fun. Oh, my God almighty. Of all the things I remember doing in school, and, you know, let's face it, all of us spent a lot of years. It's, it's interesting when you think of, of the number of years you have spent in education of one kind or another. I'm talking about classical education, where you're going to a place to be educated. Um... I mean, most people have graduated from high school. Well, all right, they're for starters. That's 12 years. Uh, that's just for starters. Um, large numbers of other people have gone to uh, to college. It's another four years, three or four years. So that's, uh, add that to the 12. How many is that now? That's, all uh, right, 16 years. Some then go on to graduate school. Add another two years for graduate school, 16, 18 years. Now stop and think that out. That's that's almost that's just a little hair this side. Now that's graduate. That's a little hair this side of twenty years. That's fascinating. <laughs> now on the other now, now twenty years. Well, now, now stop and think about this. You know what the actuarial tables say, don't you? That the average life expectancy of the male animal in America today is just a little shade over sixty-nine years give or take six or eight months one way. Now, that's the average life expectancy. Let's say 70 years. Let's just say for argument's sake, 70. We'll be, we'll, be, we'll be generous about it. 70 years. Now, the first, how many years of your life are, are, are spent just sitting there, you know, counting your toes, uh, you know, with your tongue hanging out at a, at a, at a, at a uh, highly uh, undignified angle, you know, dribbling at all pores, right? Okay, so that's... Uh, now, well, we'll say that's about four or five years right there. About the time, let's, let's assume that, the, that your life really begins when you start to, to you know, start oscillating. Uh, you're about six. Up to that time, you're just a heap of mashed potatoes with feet. 
<laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> so now you're six, right? All right, so add that six now to the, let's say, let's just for argument say 16 years of the average person. Let's say the average guy goes to college today. 16 years. Add six to that, and you have 22 years. Now, that means almost one-third of your life is spent preparing to exist. Now, let's take the other side. Now, on the other end of the scale, how many years do you spend sitting there uh, 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 <laughs> uh, trying to keep your upper plate in? Uh, <laughs> in other words, you're, you're quietly sitting over in the corner now with your head lolling, and you're returned to the first six years. You're drooling in unexpected places and having difficult with your bladder, and you're jumping up and running in and out of the room all the time. Your shoe keeps falling off. The average, this is a, a, at the other end of the scale. That's, that's another four or five years, we'll say, right? So we have to lop that off, too, or add it to the first. So we wind up with practically 30 years out of the, let's say, possible 70, or close to half, that is preparing you to do whatever it is you're supposed to do, exist, live. Now, that's a long time. In fact, that's longer than most other countries' life expectancies. Many other countries, not most, many. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so it, it produces a very interesting character, uh, the, the, the Western man. He's, he's quite different from other men because he always thinks of his life as basically a preparation. And, and you even hear it in some of uh, it's, in some of our religious attitudes. It's overtone. Yes, are you prepared to die? You don't. Are you prepared to die? You have you seen that one on on the bumper stickers? Well, all right. It's, in other words, you even prepare for this. So so life is basically a preparation. Whereas in in many of the eastern countries, it's very different. But a minute a a person is say four, you you really see it. You go, you go to a place like India. And, and here's a four-year-old kid walking down the street with a, with a pot on his head, carrying something. He's working. He's not going to the store for his mommy. He's working. And he's, also, he's working. He's sweeping the street. And he's being paid to do it. That would be unthinkable in America. And, I, and I'm not advocating it, but I'm just saying this is the way a different kind of man you know, evolves. He arrives differently. So by the time he's 12 or 13 in many parts of India. He is a man who... He is. He really is. And so getting married at 12 or 13 is not at all uh, considered unusual in India. Why should it be? He's probably been working six or seven years already, you know. And, <laughs> I mean, he's, and, and furthermore, his life expectancy is about 28. So <laughs> life is not a matter of preparation. Life is a matter of doing. And uh, you, you either do or you don't. And, and so I just... Uh, I'm just curious, you know, how much of our preparation really is an end in itself, yeah, which means that uh, that you're not really preparing for anything. You're doing a thing. So in Miss E. McCullough's class, I didn't think she ever... I, I think she had the illusion she was preparing us for Shakespeare. But let's put it this way. She was doing in Shakespeare, which meant that it was the end in itself. This was the Shakespeare that most of us would ever get in our lives, not because we were slobs or clods, or because there was a cultural gap between the F.A.D.s. No way. It was because of E. McCullough. <laughs> and, 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 I, and she says, yes, boys and girls, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. So 
I, you know, there I was. I, I, I didn't know quite what to do. I mean, pick a scene from Shakespeare. And we had these paperback books, you know, that were Shakespeare. We had one called The Complete Shakespeare, the big, thick, fat one. And, you know, you had a lot of scenes you could pick from. And uh, not one kid, by the way, picked the scenes which later all actors want to do. I don't recall one kid saying, to be or not to be. Not one kid did this. Out of all the kids in the class. Uh, and, uh, we picked strange scenes. Now, are you curious what scene? What I, I, I was going home from school that day, and there was a guy that I knew named... Uh, Chuck Hassan, I haven't you know, thought of him. For some reason, he he played a major role in that year in school because because we were both together in the middle of one of the worst debacles that I've ever had in my life. Chuck Hassan and myself and Stanley Roper were coming home and we're sitting in the bus and we're profoundly depressed because there's a certain phase in your life when if you're called upon to get up in front of the class, this profoundly depresses you. I wonder how many guys that are listening tonight uh, steered all the way through their lives, steered clear of that, that deadly course in school called public speaking. Did you have it in school, Ed? Did you have a course? Did you take it? Did you, Jerry? You took it. Well, it was an, it was an elective in my school. <laughs> and at uh, that school, uh, you know, the, the number of people who went to, to public speaking were almost always a lot of uh, tremendous extrovert types who were always taking public speaking and they loved that kind of thing you know but the great mass of the kids completely ducked the whole concept of public speaking get up there and and uh, and do this thing well here we were you know all of a sudden we we got to do the shakespeare well at that point i was deeply involved in playing football as was chuck hassan by the way, a better than average blocking back, in case you're curious. He was good. And and uh, Stanley Roper was a tall, skinny guy who played on the second basketball. He's a basketball player. I said, I don't know. So we did what a lot of people often do. We decided that in, in uh, numbers there is strength. If you have to get up by yourself and say, you know, you've got this fake skull, and say to be or not to be, you're up there by yourself, you know? But if you did a scene where there's three guys together, it's kind of groovy. So we we did a scene. We picked a scene. The only one we could find a scene uh, that involved three people. And and we had no idea what it was about. I mean, we, we couldn't conceive you know, what the hell this was about. But instinctively, we picked this scene because it seemed to us to be vaguely funny. Now, we couldn't figure out why, because, let's face it, we were basically total illiterates. And, uh, and it, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not at all unusual that you don't quite get what the hell you're talking about when you're reading Shakespeare. So you know what we did? We did the scene that involved, you recall, the scene that involved Bottom and Tinker? Remember that scene? And and I played bottom. <laughs> I don't know why I played bottom. So so we we played this scene. We we studied it. We we decided well how we were going to play it, and we we uh, we uh, tried to memorize the words and all that kind of stuff. And the day that we got up there again, this was Eve McCullough uh, killing us. Now had we had she let us just go up there and make total fools of ourselves 
and uh, done the thing and then said, that was very nice, or saying, uh, you know, maybe you ought to practice it some more or something like that, we'd have been all right. But here's what she did. I got up on the, on the stage there and it was up in the front. We had a platform in the front of the, the, the class, see, and, and Chuck Hassan's on one side and the other guys on the other side, see, Stanley's on the other side. So we began to see and uh, Miss McCullough says, All right, uh, all right uh, boys, what scene are you going to do? What play have you selected? And uh, Chuck said, uh, oh, We're going to do uh, this one from uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, very nice. That's an excellent play, and I'm sure that the boys, he goes, Are one of you playing Puck? Uh, <laughs> we sort of staggered back. You know? we, didn't, we didn't even read that much. <laughs> we went through the damn thing. <laughs> Picked this thing out because there were three guys talking, and somehow I liked the idea of a guy named Bottom. So uh, that's how we really actually selected. She said, And that's how we started. She said, uh, Well, would you please, before you begin, would you please tell the class why you selected that very, very funny play and how you happened to select the scene that you did select. Now tell them why you enjoy this scene. Well, the three of us are standing... Uh, I, I said the only thing I could say. I said, well, I... I, I uh, gee, uh, Chuck, uh, uh, tell her why we picked it. <laughs> she said, well, it's got three people in it, and... Uh, it's got three people in it, and, uh, and, uh, she says, well, yes, but is that the only reason why you put, selected that scene? What scene did you select? Well, uh, we're going to do, uh, a scene here with the, with the bottom, and, oh, my, my, that's, I, I know exactly the scene you're going to do. You're going to see, do the scene in the forest with the, with the, uh, uh, by that time I could see it sinking in the west. And, I, and and the class is giving this bored look on their faces already. Well, after about five minutes of discussion on why we did the scene, we began the scene. It was the first time I've ever run into what could be called total stage block. Now, we were supposed to learn the scene, so we were supposed to act it out. We didn't get there with the books. Now, I didn't have the block. Chuck Hassan suddenly turned into Ralston. He turned into cream of wheat. He's standing there with his face just frozen. And I said things like, I remember the, repeating my line over and over again. Uh, hee-haw! 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 And he, he, he just looked at me. And then I went, hee-haw! And finally, Miss McCullough stepped in and said, boys and girls, now this shows just exactly what I mean by not preparing your work. We had worked on that thing night after night for a solid week. We practiced it three hours a night. We got up in front of the stage, and the minute we got up there, Chuck Hassan turned into cream of wheat. And she made, she says, boys and girls, I just want to tell you that this is a result of, of not preparing, and I just want to say that I hope the rest of you are better prepared than that. Shakespeare is to enjoy, enjoy, and I'm just so sorry that you boys just didn't take it seriously enough. Now, you go back to your seats, and uh, uh, would uh, Esther Jane please come up here with... And we sat down, and I remember that bus ride home in silence. Because we thought we were going to have a lot of fun. We had prepared this thing, you know, and uh, Chuck came in. He had a funny little thing he was going to do, you know, and he had his funny hat that he was going to put on all that jazz. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. 
Tom Wicker. You know him as the New York Times associate editor, columnist, former Washington bureau chief. Tom Wicker, the man who holds a ringside seat in the Washington arena. Now Tom Wicker has written the political novel of and for our time, Facing the Lions. The behind-the-scenes story of a down-home hand-pumping senator in his bid for his party's presidential nomination, Facing the Lions, written as only the man who lived in the political lion's den could write it, Facing the Lions. One of the best novels you will read this year and one of the best political novels you will ever read, says the New York Times Book Review. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. agrees. Facing the Lions is a first-rate political novel. And John Kenneth Galbraith pays this tribute. Complex, deep, valid, and enormously interesting. Facing the Lions, the new bestseller published by the Viking Press at all bookstores. I can imagine the New York Times giving Tom Wicker a bad review. Please. Hi, Don Crickey here. What do New Yorkers really think about Barclays Traveler's Checks? We've had no problems anywhere, and uh, they seem a bit more prestigious than the other checks we used to use. I find that Traveler's Checks particularly uh, helpful. In most places in the world, they are readily accepted with no question. Last year, I went to Israel, and I had about $400 worth, and I had no trouble. They were all happy to get my traveler's checks. Now I'm going to the Orient, and uh, to particularly Indonesia and the Indonesian archipelago. And it's in places like that that I find Barclays checks so valuable. These are just a few of the comments seasoned travelers are making about Barclays traveler's checks. They speak for themselves. Isn't it time you tried Barclays? Well, let's see. Thank you, Mr. Crickey. And, uh... John Crickey, that's a great name. Crickey. Sounds like a curious, archaic English game. In New Jersey, Barclays Traveler's Checks are available free of charge to customers only at Nutley Savings and Loan Association in Nutley. Very good. That's, uh, that's it, then. We've done it. Right. You know, it, uh, uh, it, I, it must be it must be depressing, though. I, I, I have to say this. I have, at one time or another, uh, attempted in various ways to stand in front of a class and teach and to look down on that crowd of totally uninvolved uh, faces. <laughs> I mean, you know, looking at it on the other side, but, but the miss... Miss E. McCullough's voice has always remained with me. That that horse and the jangle of her ceramic, handmade Mexican jewelry. And and uh, she had a, she had the, a curious, uh, strong perfume that she always wore. Some kind of a some kind of an exotic woodland scent. She liked to think was uh, was uh, you know somehow exotic. And the rustle of those tweed skirts. And she'd come striding into the room, and she wore space shoes. You know, the kind of strong lady. And uh, she wore space shoes. And uh, she, she had these, these jade hair clips. So she'd look down at all of us from that Olympian peak of understanding and feeling and knowing all things cultural. And soon she turned on... Others were indifferent, and then there were others she turned completely off. And the ones she turned on later became 
handmade jewelry fans. I took a wonderfully interesting trip to Peru. And, uh, and I brought back some wonderful slides, and I'd love to show them to the ladies of the PTA. That's, uh, that's another world. And they, they, all, they all became almost to a man and to a lady in later life, uh, players of the recorder, singers of Welsh folk songs. You know, one of the best, one of the best satires I've ever seen on that, that level. Did you ever see Lucky Jim with the fantastic scene of all the people sitting around singing Elizabethan part songs? A great scene. Look for it the next time you see it in a movie.